All right, well, welcome back to uh, Sunday School, to our series on the law. Can't really start without just mentioning the sadness of losing Marco this week. But, um, of course, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. He was a quiet guy. Um, I, I got a few close chats with him over the years, but he had a great testimony of grace, of being saved out of a pursuit of works righteousness. And, uh, of course, he's not sad like we are, but he was such a great um, faithful model uh, just working in the shadows very diligently every week. And I'm sure outside of Sundays uh, with the diaconate. Um, and so we pray for his family, particularly Sam. So please pray for her. I think the 23rd is the, the funeral. We'll have more on that in the service, I'm sure. But um, thankfully, he, he knows the things we're talking about uh, more than any of us at this point. And it's a great reminder that we don't we don't study these things to fill our heads up with knowledge. Um, I know last week was a bit complicated. Um, that, that's not the intent. We're here to, to learn more about Christ uh, and to grow closer to him. And so, um, again, let us remember his family this week. Uh, speaking of last week, um, I got a lot of great feedback. Uh, it was a humbling because it sounds like I made it a bit too complicated. So if you were lost last week, you were in good company. Um, and so I don't want to make it feel like doing systematic theology is necessarily so complex and complicated. It can be. Uh, and I certainly don't mean to distract us with um, a lot of details that are less important. And so today has the same threat. And so I'm going to try to be a little more careful. Number one, I'm going to go back over a couple of the highlights last week and pause for questions. And if that's as far as we get, that's great. I've got a few more weeks to teach here than originally planned. Uh, today, when I do the more complex stuff, I'm going to put it on the top of the board. And so if you miss any of that, don't worry. But if you want to talk about that more later, we can. But if you're missing stuff on the bottom of the board, that's the focus of the study, then I'd like you to stop me and, and make sure we clarify those things. So again, we'll see how far we get today. I'm not sure we'll get through all of it. And we can finish up next week. But let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word that we can bow to it. And it is complex, it is deep, and yet it is simple. Help us not to get lost in the complexities, help, help that to be a challenge to us, to humble us for how far we can go, and yet help us not to lose sight of, of the main things. And we do thank you for Marco and his service to this church, his example to us, and we trust that he who did much in secret was seen by his father in secret, and he is being greatly rewarded uh, in glory today. We pray for Sam, particularly, and for any of his coworkers and, and those who knew him, that this would be a great reminder to them and to all of us of the brevity of life. May we cling to it, may we pursue relationships um, while we have the time. Uh, and now bless us in your word, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so introduced last week uh, this concept of a continuity and discontinuity, which is a very helpful thing. Um, it, it's not a perfect thing, but it, but it can help. S some of the main things it helps us with is covenants, probably the biggest area we talk about it in this church. 
the kingdom of God and the people of God. And then to the, this study is really on the law, which I would say is part of the kingdom. And so um, those things go hand in hand, how you kind of view the continuity of the covenants, what has remained the same. And I'm talking about continuity from the Old Testament into the New Testament. Uh, what, what kind of stays the same? What, what, what stays the same with maybe a little twist in its form or its shape, but the essence remains the same? Um, we talk a lot about that with covenant theology. Uh, the kingdom of God, the rule of God, we'll get into that. But the word kingdom is used in a lot of different ways and by a lot of different Christians. And then the people of God, what is the relationship between the Israel and the church? And again, these all go hand in hand, um, at least very often. We're doing a systematic study. Hopefully that's one way you study the Bible. Other ways is just a pure reading through of putting different pieces together into biblical theology and an exegetical study. Um, so as it comes to the law, people who are further on the left on my board, the continuity side, uh, they're gonna see more essence of the law remaining the same, although the form and the shape might, might uh, change a bit. Um, more is preserved from the old into the new. People on this side are gonna see more transformed by the coming of Christ. That Christ entrance into the world, the introduction of the new covenant, transform things, real eschatological shifts, so big changes, much bigger changes than those on the left side of the board. Were commands in the Old Testament, uh, do they remain till today, or do they all change? Are they abrogated? And, and as you see, there's not a distinct category, it's a spectrum. And so last week I tried to define our view, and th this week and next week I'll try to do two contrasting views. So today, I'll remind us what the PCA position is, the Westminster Confession of Faith position is, and I'm gonna concentrate on the people who are more discontinuous than us. They see bigger changes, bigger shifts from the Old Testament to the New. So again, our grid for understanding the law is that the Ten Commandments are the summary of the moral law. By moral, I mean that's something that derives straight from God's character. It's true for all people of all times, uh, and so they abide today. We ought to still follow and teach the Ten Commandments. Now we know that the Ten Commandments within the, all the commands of the, the Mosaic Law were clearly special. They were the ones that were written by the finger of God. The tablets of stone were, the, were in the covenant itself where Moses scribed the rest of the commandments. And I gave you some verses there in your handout. By the way, if you're listening online, there, there should be a handout embedded there in the live feed. Where often Perhaps, usually, when commandments are, are quoted in the New Testament, it seems that the Ten Commandments are, are what are highlighted, and even to Gentile churches. So that would be our argument, that the Ten Commandments abide today. Now, the other commandments, the other 300 whatever commandments there were, uh, are no longer in force. They have fallen away with the passing of the Israel as a physical nation and a political entity, and the coming of Jesus, who's done away with all the temple worship and sacrifice and that whole system. However, we believe that you can and should find moral principles embedded in all those other commandments. And then particularly, we believe in a Sunday Sabbath. So that's one of the issues that often comes around. So our position would focus on 10 commandments, uh, Sunday Sabbath. I'll just leave it at that. And then I'll see moral principles in the others. 
the ch some of the challenges I presented last week that you would want to think through are where do the two greatest commandments fit into this? If Ten Commandments is our moral law and that's what we're going to keep and teach and we're going to kind of draw, every, everything else is going to come to the Ten Commandments somehow, what about the two greatest commandments? Those aren't found in the Ten Commandments. And clearly those abide, right? Jesus taught those. It's, in fact, love your neighbor is found in Leviticus 19 right along in the flow of a bunch of other laws we would say don't exist today. So that's kind of a, an exegetical challenge. How does the Sabbath change days, right? How does a moral law, a body and law that flows from God's character change, particularly when you root that in the creation, which obviously doesn't change. There's lots of sexual ethics that we would teach that weren't explicitly in the Ten Commandments. So how do we understand those? And then there's things like tithing and fasting, which we often talk about, sometimes teach about. Um, but again, those you might naturally think would be more of the ceremonial laws we talked about last week. So some of the challenges to think through. And we'll just kind of bridge that, that yet last week with where I want to go. And some of this is to clarify. Some of it is in response to specific questions I got from you guys. Um, first of all is, how important is this? I mean, yes, I made it more complex than it needs to be. But even beyond that, what if, what if it was clear, like, this is kind of dry stuff, right? How does this affect me today? And I think that's a fair question. Let me just caution against overusing that, um, that question. If, if your only approach in studying the Bible is to apply it to your life, um, you're not reading the Bible properly. That's not the only reason God gave us his word, is to know how to live my life today. So that's a bit of a reductionist mindset, if that's all you're doing. But of course, that's an important aspect. And in the end, we have, there's practicality, right? There's only so much that we can study. And so at some point, any subject, you're going to have to decide, how much is this worth my time? I know I went through a phase of trying to figure out the, the days of creation, shorter, long earth, and it's a great study. I, I just can't study that the rest of my life. Like, I, I had to get on to other things. And, and you'll have to make your own decisions. So I'm not saying this is of utmost importance to you, um, particularly in its application, because the, the things, he, he, what are we most, if you're really just looking at application, what, what does this study really affect us? Perhaps the biggest thing would be your view of the Sabbath, because that would affect which day you honor, um, exactly how you live that day. But even then, within Presbyterians, we're all over the map on exactly um, what we would allow ourselves to do or not on the Sabbath. Um, it's potentially uh, in our evangelism, I mentioned this last week, I think, as, as, cr as you have less um, Christian cultures uh, in our own culture and others, some of the sexual ethics, I think, are going to come into play. Like, how much can you press Old Testament commands uh, into that new culture? A lot of us, it doesn't matter. None of us are probably interested in marrying our sister. And so we don't have to, we don't care. Like, okay, that's a nice academic exercise is all it is. But there are places in the church where they're, they're going to have to address these things. And then one thing we'll get into next week is if we are to be a prophetic voice to the culture, and that's an if, um, what, what commands, how much do we bring the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law, to tell society, this is how you should have a criminal system. This is what social justice means and looks like. So there is some practicality there, I suppose. 
I think the bigger things are not the application. The bigger things are how you get to your, your position gets into all of this. Like, how do you interpret the scriptures in general? Because how you see the Old Testament today um, will affect how you read prophecy. It will affect how you deal with any quotes or, or allusions to the Old Testament and how you see God working sovereignly throughout all of history. So I, I'm probably much more interested in how you get to your position than where you land on these specific things. The problem with that is if I really want to dive into all that, I get it even more complex. And so I'm trying to strike that balance. Okay, um, so let's get into some of this. So, so there's, there are historical covenants. We've got Noah, we've got Abraham, we've got Moses, we've got David, and then we've got Jesus, right? Those are your biblical, expressly biblical covenants. We, and many others, would include Adam in there. Not everybody does that. So I'll, I'll fill it in like that. So this would be more of your, your straight, explicit, biblical approach to covenants. Would these be historical covenants? So the question is, is how do these all fit? Now, uh, in our church, as covenant theology, we would see a covenant of works here in the garden. And then we would see the covenant of grace starting in the garden and going all the way through. So this would be systematic language. And you might even talk about the covenant of redemption before history. So these would be more of your biblical, uh, explicit biblical covenants, and these would be your systematic approach to getting there. And so I want to walk through today some of the different positions on the law, and I just, I'll kind of reference up here how some of the covenant views might affect uh, what their position is. Notice, though, that Moses is over here. That's not really the scale of history, right? Um, let me dif- differentiate Adam and uh, Abraham there. So Moses is here. So we've, g- we've got some history and some Bible that happens before Moses. Usually in this talk, we're talking about how people view the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic law. And so there is actually a difference between how the term Old Testament and Old Covenant. Theoretically, they're the same. Testament is a covenant. But typically we say Old Testament as far as all of the scriptures that we have, right, in the Old Testament. Well, biblically, the phrase Old Covenant is the Mosaic Covenant. So explicitly, whenever Hebrews, quoting Jeremiah, etc., talks about Old Covenant, it's, it's talking about Moses. That sometimes gets lost even in the talk of discussion on baptism, and it gets a little complex. Sometimes we just kind of whitewash the whole Old and say Old Covenant, and we bring in everything. Um, now, you might systematically defend that and, and see that a reference to Moses means the reference to everything. That would be fine, but that's not exactly what it, it means. So, I don't know if, I didn't know I was going to do this. You know those old stereos? I don't know. Mine had a cassette player, obviously, growing up. You kind of have your speakers on the side. You've got the main box in the middle, but you can detach these. So, I kind of view it as Moses is this middle bit. That's the Old Covenant. And maybe you have Abraham here, and you have David here. I don't know if this analogy works with you. Now, when the New Testament is talking about the Old Covenant, they're grabbing hold of that handle, do they mean that as representative 
of, the, of everything in the old, all the covenants, or, or are they specifically just talking about Moses? And that's an interpretive thing that you'll have to decide in the text. But that does account for some of the differences be, between different churches and different Christians of how they view these things. So, uh, so what happened back here? Number one, I didn't really mention this last week, but we believe that the Ten Commandments are the moral law of God given in Moses here, but that's the same law that we would say was given to man, to Adam, on his heart. And that one reason we can say it's moral and abiding is that's, that's the same moral expectation that God has placed in every human being on the earth. And, and really, I don't know if I can say they don't need special revelation to understand that. They're, they ought to understand what's right and wrong basically from their own conscience, right? Because God has placed it there. It's just muddled with sin. And so we would say then that the Ten Commandments aren't reliant on Moses. So you could get rid of Moses and we would still have the moral law written on the heart of God, right? So the, how you view the, the ending of Moses doesn't settle the issue per se. As well, you have things that we call creation ordinances. So what are the things that God commanded Adam about, um, you know, labor, uh, taking dominion over the earth, getting married, having children, and filling the earth? Um, those things, and then the, the argument for a Sabbath would be rooted in creation as well. So you could say that how you deal with Moses and all the challenging passages on that don't necessarily settle everything, right? although we're going to continue to mainly talk about Moses here. Also, Noah is often used as our basis for capital punishment, that we wouldn't need the Ten Commandments or any of the Mosaic Law that's rooted right there in Noah. Circumcision. Circumcision started with Abraham. It didn't start with Moses, right? So again, uh, I would have to tell Baptists to be careful in their arguments with Presbyterians. You can't just say, see, Old Covenant is gone, New Covenant's here. What about Abraham? You've got to deal with the link to Abraham. And so if you thought it was complex, it, it can get a lot more. So let me just pause there. And if we don't get any further in the hand, that's fine with me. I just want to give the chance what questions you might have or comments you have from last week. We'll have a microphone coming um, so we can at least clear those up. Or if you want to talk about some of the challenges I presented. Mark. Keith, does... Uh the concept of progressive revelation playing to this at all, where God progressively reveals himself in more and more detail as time progresses? D d well, yeah. I mean, your view on that will obviously shape. Um, one of the passages we're going to look at today is from Matthew 5. Um, that's exactly one of the arguments there, is, is Jesus simply um, expositing Moses on the Old Testament, or is he creating new laws? Is he revealing new commands to us as Christians in the New Covenant? He's the new lawgiver. He's the new Moses. That would be a very discontinuous view, right? He is changing Moses. So at the extreme end, people would say, I don't care what Moses said. I care what Jesus says. Uh, or is he more making some, as the more left on the board, you're getting more continuous, like, okay, he's, he's pulling Moses forward, maybe you know, get rid of some of the, the wrong notions. And, and some people would say, well, Moses hasn't changed at all, that law of Christ and law of Moses are exactly the same thing. That would be the full view. D did that answer? Yeah, I'm, it was actually a rhetorical question. I mean, it's... <laughs> <laughs> I knew you knew, that, or you had an answer. I don't know if it's the right one. <laughs> no, that, that, that is the question. 
Clearly there is progression in Revelation. Obviously. You know, our fathers, our fathers he revealed um, in one way. Now he reveals us through his son, to us through his son, right? Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. Yeah. So, you know, God reveals himself in many ways. So certainly in Christ there's a new and a fuller revelation. The question is how much of that is telling you what was already there versus giving you something brand new. Uh, something we talked about a while ago was the idea of the mystery. Paul talks about the mystery of the gospel, that the inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God. That was not a known thing. At some level, God purposely kept it disclosed or kept it hidden, and now he's disclosed it. Yep. Well, and obviously, we say now the canon is closed, so when we look at that concept of progressive revelation, it ends with the end of the Yeah, I, I obviously, charismatics would believe in a continued revelation, and I guess groups like Catholics through the Pope, uh, Mormons through their prophet, there are groups that would believe in a continued revelation, um, but we as evangelicals would say no, the, the Bible is closed. Um, now, we would, we would probably agree that the Spirit applies that word in specific, unique ways to us, but there's no new revelation that we would go out and say, thus saith the Lord. That's one thing we talked about on legalism. We have no authority and no right uh, to do that, number one, and, and by doing so, we actually undermine God's word. Any other questions or comments from last week? Yes. I don't want to, is it on? Yeah. I don't want to steal your thunder, and if I am, just tell me to be quiet. But isn't covenant uh, understanding of Scripture and dispensational understanding of Scripture is a hermeneutic? It is a pair of glasses we wear when we look at Scripture. It's like a prescription. Their prescription is different than our prescription. And so the argument really becomes who has the better prescription, who has the more biblical prescription that they bring to bear on the text because we're all dealing with the same Bible. We're all looking at it, but then the issue becomes, okay, you, like you take the Mosaic administration, was it an administration of the covenant of grace? Yes, it was. I believe it was. So it's not just law. It's also an administration of... The, because when God gave the Ten Commandments, he gave it to the people he was in covenant with that he took out of Egypt, representing redeemed people. Uh, and so he gave them the law. And, for example, if the law is a tran the Ten Commandments are a transcript of God's character, which I believe they are, then uh, does God change? Right, and that's exactly the question. That's why you can't really come into a position without understanding all of this together and more. And that's why I, I think we can all see that it's not so simple and black and white. It's, it's, it's complex. And it, you know, it takes a lifetime of study and we'll only get a, you know, a little bit there. Yeah, th sometimes the guys on this side of the board think that they're not being systematic at all, that they have no glasses, they're just Bible people. Um, but they're not. We, we all have our system. That's why I say you need the different types of study. You need to read the text, uh, understand what it is, in context, historical context if you can get there, and start putting it together. And you build a system, and then that system is gonna end up shaping you. And you're just always willing to challenge the system from the text. In the end, the Bible wins, but none of us can just read the Bible objectively. That's absolutely impossible. 
Totally agree. Anyone else? All right. Well, we will dare to move on. All right, let's talk about some of these positions. Now, I'm going to, again, it's a spectrum. I'm going to talk about specific groups um, moving to the right of the board that are more continuous and then less continuous. So uh, the ones I'm going to talk about are all Calvinistic Baptists. I did get a question on Lutherans last week. Um, I don't know where Lutherans are. I, Lutheran, Lutherans don't seem to fit in my categories. Um, they don't really look at the Bible through covenants the, the way we do. Um, but I think they would be pretty discontinuous, at least in practice. They, they are very sensitive to the law-gospel divide, and they get a little skittish when you talk about law. For good reason, they, they're afraid of justification by works type of mentality. I think they go too far. I think the, the main reformed critique is they go too far in that way, but they would be over here. But the, the groups I can talk to a little more on the Baptist side. So three main groups I'll talk about, although I could divide those further if you want me to. <laughs> uh, reformed Baptists are the first ones we'll talk about. So reformed Baptists, um, you have kind of t at least two types. Um, and uh, talking about in histor historically, maybe guys like Spurgeon, Lloyd-Jones would be more in this category. Um, today, I don't know who the most famous ones would be. I know some of you are familiar with James White. He would be in this category. So the 1689 Confession, which is like Westminster Confession light, um, it would see the exact same systematic structure of a covenant of works, a covenant of grace through multiple administrations, just like the Westminster. Um, that would be one group. And so the main, from a law standpoint, the main difference they would, they would have then is going to be obviously on baptism. And so one of, the, one of the key points, obviously, to a Baptist would be that there's no explicit New Testament command to baptize infants. Now, if I was teaching a Sunday school to a Baptist audience, I would say, good start. I think that's a legitimate part of your argument. Don't end there. <laughs> Most Baptists, that's about all they know. Well, I don't see it, so it must not be there. And that's not really sufficient. And it's not going to go very far with the Presbyterian, nor should it. So they, at least at that point, they see a shift, right? A shift that Presbyterians don't see. They see a difference in who is commanded to be given the sign. And really, baptism isn't about baptism. It's about covenantal membership. Another group of Reformed Baptists would, would be different here is they would, they would say there is a covenant of works. There's a covenant of grace. But the covenant of grace is the new covenant. So this is all of a, they have a covenant of works in the garden, and everything else is a promise to get to the covenant of grace. They wouldn't actually put these covenants in the covenant of grace itself. They're more foreshadowing. I don't know if it's a huge difference. It starts, as, as far as where it comes to in law, it starts to change some of the trajectory, I think. Um, there was actually a debate in the 1640s, around the time that Westminster was written, where Presbyterians were, were arguing with the Reformed Baptists of the time, the creed, creed, what they called themselves Covenantal Credo-Baptists, I think that's the term, or Credo-Baptist Covenantalists, Reformed Baptists, we'll just call them that. Uh, believer's Baptism, when I say Credo-Baptism. So one of the accusations from the Presbyterians to the Baptists was, you're inconsistent because you hold on to a Sabbath, just like we do, but you don't hold on to infants in the, in the covenant. And your argument would be, 
there's no explicit command, right, in the New Testament for the baptism. Well, there's no explicit command on changing the day to Sunday, um, and so, or, or even to continue a Sabbath, some would argue. So you're inconsistent. The Baptist answer was, is to understand categories of law. Just like we understand last week, talked about moral law, civil law, ceremonial law, the Baptist would say, well, the Sabbath is a moral or a natural law. It abides by its very nature, coming from the character of God, where circumcision was what they call a positive law. So it's not positive versus negative, but it's, it was posited. It was assumed to be true. Just like I said last week, there are, there are laws that are not moral in their nature, but God uses them. He, he commands something for covenantal purposes. So circumcision obviously didn't last, right, in, in the past. It, it came to be a, a point in time, and so that, that positive nature of the law, that it's, it makes it temporary in nature. And so obviously they would, they would not use the same construct as Presbyterians to, to bring that sign forward into the new uh, by some continuity. They're going to look, they're going to be more discontinuous at that point and say, well, what does the New Testament teach us about covenant membership and the covenant sign? They're not going to take, they're not going to follow the strand back to circumcision, at least as strongly as pres- Presbyterians would. First Corinthians 7, 19 says, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor un- uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. And so they'd say, see, keep, to keep the commandments of God today is not to follow circumcision. So that would be one level of discontinuity from us. Another category I'll talk about is New Covenant theology. And if we have time today, the last three verses will, will be somewhere in between these two. Now, I don't want this to be a lesson on New Covenant theology or covenant theologies in general. Some of the John Piper, D.A. Carson, now they would not call themselves New Covenant theology, but they would adopt some aspects of New Covenant theology. So I gave those names because they're probably the more common ones. I think their view on the law, this is my own perception, probably is closer to New Covenant theology than it is to Reformed Baptists. Although I don't think they would take that label. Ted Tripp, Paul Tripp's brother, is New Covenant theology. Maybe another name you've heard. So they would say, some, some of them hold to a covenant of works. They call themselves progressive covenantalists. Most New Covenant theology does not believe in a covenant of works. They don't like this whole structure. They say, let's just stick with the biblical language. The systematic language there gets confusing. So let's, let's, not, um, let's not go there. They see, as far as the people of God, they have a sharp distinction between Israel and the church. Um, Israel is more of a foreshadow of the church as the people of God. Different from dispensationalists, they, they don't think there's any future for Israel. All that's free. Don't worry about it if I lost you there. Now, for, as far as Ten Commandments, the New Covenant theology would say no. They, would, they do not like the threefold nature of the law, moral, ceremonial, civil. They see the law, the Mosaic law, as one unit. It either continues or, or, or is abrogated as a whole. So if there's any similarity uh, between now and then, it's because of what we find in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. We don't turn to Moses in any way, including the Ten Commandments. The more extreme ones say the Ten Commandments never had to do with the heart. It only had to do with external laws. I don't know what they do with the Tenth Commandment, should not covet, but they would say, they would say like in Matthew 5, when Jesus talks about anger, that that's a new, that was never part of murder. 
they would say that's a new aspect of Jesus' Jesus's teaching. They're not saying that anger was, was okay, that it wasn't a sin, just that it wasn't part of the Mosaic law. They would say, just like we would say that we can find moral principles within the civil and ceremonial law, they would say, well, you have to treat the Ten Commandments the same way. Part of the Ten Commandments will continue because it is moral, and part of it strips away. They would, they would look to things within the Ten Commandments that are written in the context of, of Egypt in the desert, uh, sorry, uh, Israel in the desert. I took you out of Egypt. Talks about servants and livestock. The, it, the reference to the land your God has given you would say, see, that's very mosaic. That's very Israel specific. And so we can't just take the Ten Commandments carte blanche into the new. We're going to have to look at it through the prism of the New Testament to see what comes across. 2 Corinthians 3 is one of their big passages. Calls it the, the carved in letters of stone, the Ten Commandments, a ministry of death that was being brought to an end. So not the Mosaic Covenant as a whole only, but very specifically they see the Ten Commandments as abrogated as well. Now the biggest change that you'll find then, the biggest thing of any discussion point is really the Sabbath. They do not believe in a weekly Sabbath. Turning to passages like Hebrews 4, they would say that the, the real fulfillment of Sabbath is to rest in Christ, to believe in Christ, rest from doing works to be saved. They would say that's what Sabbath was really about. And actually, I think we should all agree with that. The question is, is now, in the now-not-yet phase of our existence, is there still a weekly observance? I think we would all agree in the end, in glory, right? There's no weekly Sabbath, I don't think. Maybe there is. I don't even know. They would turn to passages like Colossians 2, where they think it says there's no more Sabbath. Sabbath was part of the former shadows of the law. They would also turn to passages like Exodus 31 and Ezekiel 20 to say the Sabbath was a sign of the Old Covenant. So we have circumcision is a sign of Abraham, baptism is a sign of the New Covenant. They would say that the sign of the Mosaic Covenant was the Sabbath. And so if the, if the Mosaic Covenant is going to go away, then the sign of that covenant would naturally fall away as well. They don't buy into the fact that you can keep nine and not ten of the commandments. That's not a problem for them. All right, I won't deal too much with dispensationalists. There's a whole bunch of brands. Um, there are dispensationalists that don't go all the way to the Tim LaHaye kind of, um, you know, lots of charts kind of things. Probably the main dispensation you've ever heard of or, or you grew up in. Um, good kind of dispensationalism. Um, John MacArthur would probably be an example of this. He may not use the label progressive, but they do believe in a distinct physical Israel and a future millennial kingdom. That would be different than us. But they also accept a spiritual throne of David as well, the way we would. The church shares in the blessings of Israel, and they're very insistent on a single gospel for all people. So that's, that's good, right? We don't want to get to the extreme where Jews are saved by works and, you know, everyone else is saved by grace. No, they, they would absolutely uh, be against that. And they would say that uh, the Gospels, Sermon on the Mount, the rest of the Gospels, apply to us as Christians. There are some dispensationalists uh, way over here on this side that say, don't even read the Gospels. They're not for you. They're not your love letter. They're somebody else's. I heard a Sunday school teacher tell me that once. Just read the epistles, they said. Okay, so that's a, a broad view. Um, I think I am going to jump ahead. Well, let me pause to see if I've lost anyone there. Uh, and if we don't get to the last session, that's fine. Microphone. 
Oh, well, the people on there do. They can't hear anything on there. Nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. Yes. And, new, and they, the only one that isn't, that. the only one that isn't is the Sabbath. Yes. Okay? So how is it abrogated if nine of the ten of them are repeated in the New Testament? Well, they would say, don't just stop at the Ten Commandments. They'd say, love your neighbor is not abrogated. What? Right? That's right. Love your neighbor is I not in the Ten the Commandments. I thought the two tables of the law were... Yeah, they, so they, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second table is love your neighbor as yourself. Right, that would be our glasses. That's not their glasses. Okay. They, don't, they don't see that. Okay. They, they would say, yes, the Ten Commandments were special, but they weren't, you don't assume because they were special that they continue. Yeah. There's nowhere that would equate them to the moral law. Okay. And then that, that sign, being the sign of the covenant is how they would argue that. Yeah. You've got to say at least it's curious that nine come over and the ten don't. All right? All right, so this is really where we should spend a lot of time. I'm not going to because um, I've given you the passages you can look up, and I think it might just slow us down too much. Uh, these specific passages I got from Douglas Moo. It's a guy I love listening to, actually. He, he would fall somewhere kind of like Piper and D.A. Carson. He used to teach with D.A. Carson. He's part of the NIV Translation Committee and has done a lot of work. He'd be somewhere in there. Um, so th three passages. What's there? Yeah, you wouldn't know it though. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not saying he's a Baptist, just where he is on the law. <laughs> um, Matthew 5, we're going to look at this more next week, and we did look at it last week and last year when I went through the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. And so, let's have our own little section down here. So, first of all, he says, what does it mean by uh, the law or the commandments? He would take it as not the moral law. He would say that's not a category Jesus thought in and operated in. Again, he, he's taking the covenant as, as a whole covenant, the whole law as a, as a whole document. He thinks it, it, happens, it has to do with particularly the Mosaic law, though he would say it applies to all Old Testament law. He would say the phrase every jot and tittle clearly goes beyond just the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. It goes to everything that Moses taught. But then the big question is, is what does fulfill mean? And this is the kind of thing that you'd have to dive into these texts to kind of start to put together. The word fulfill can mean lots of things, just as a English or a Greek word. Uh, lots of people have said, well, that has to do with a, Jesus fulfills the law by establishing it, by upholding the law. Other people on this side would say, no, there's a radical change, uh, that there's a deepening of the law. So, like I said, murder was always true. Now that commandment also applies to anger. So that's that something that wasn't there. It's a deepening of the law. His own view is that it's more of an anticipation realization. And so that there's, there's, a, there's a continuity of the past that um, the, the law and Moses anticipated Christ. And so that the commandments find their fulfillment. They're filled up in Christ. And so we look at all the different commandments that we have from the Old Testament. We have to interpret them and apply them through the lens of Christ. And so Sometimes they're going to stay the same. Sometimes they're going to be quite different. We can't just go with some monolithic um, 
system to interpret each thing. And his examples are the six examples in Matthew 5. You know, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not take oaths. Uh, he says none of those grids work perfectly. They seem to work for two or three of the commands, and then for two of the three other ones, they don't. And so the way he wrestles with that, we've said this has a lot of nuance in it, this study. He would say all of them fit into a grid of they anticipated Christ. But exactly how they work on this side of the cross isn't going to be some monolithic answer. Maybe it's kind of a non-answer. That's what theologians tend to do. There we are. He would say you go to Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Jesus doesn't say go follow Moses. He says teach the nations what I have commanded you. So again, the central thing for these guys over here is Jesus in the New Testament. That's their central grid. Another passage is Romans 10.4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So again, he takes law here to mean the Mosaic law, not just legalism like some people do. And so then the, what is the word telos? What's translated end or goal? He would say we need to take in both of these meanings. So the, if Christ is the end of the law, he puts a stop to it, that's a very discontinuous view, right? Christ comes, he ends the law. Uh, the more radical New Covenant theologians would say that. But if he's the goal of the law, then he would say Christ does end the law, but he does it in a way because it was the goal. It was the telos. Very similar to the word fulfill. So he would say Romans 10 is teaching the same thing as Matthew 5, that these laws that Moses gave anticipated Christ. They looked forward to Christ. Now that Christ has come, he's ended them as is. He's ended the very form, uh, and some of them he's ended completely. But they all anticipated that there's a new goal, or he, Jesus was the goal in that law. And so he doesn't want to be so radical to say, don't worry about the old, let's just start again. Uh, you had a list of whatever, 300, 600 commandments in the old, I'm going to give you a new list for the new. No, everything we talk about now has its connection somehow in Moses. Um, but again, there's, there's this, a bigger transformation than we would see in our circles. And the last passage, well, there's two, is the whole idea of the law of Christ. You'll hear that phrase. So Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Nothing in the immediate context, I think, would drive you to the, what that means. You kind of have to go to the rest of Galatians and the rest of Paul's writings, maybe. He uses a similar phrase in 1 Corinthians 9.21, where he says that I'm not under the law of Christ. I'm not in laud to Christ. So again, a lot of study you could do on figuring out what that means. The continuous view would say that the law of Christ is the law of Moses. It's just, he's expounding the law of Moses. There's no, no difference there, or no big difference there. Uh, a discontinuous view would say, what would Jesus do? Um, like, how do we know how to live as Christians? Let's go look at Christ. Let's, let's let him be our example and our model. We don't really think about the old at all. Again, his more nuanced view would say that as, as the law is fulfilled in Christ, as it finds its goal and its end in Christ, the law of Christ is somehow tied to what he said earlier in Galatians about if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Um, the, sum, the law is the summary, Galatians 5. You were called to freedom, brothers, Freedom from what exactly? Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbors yourself. So it's kind of that law of love. Love ought to drive our ethics. 
Romans 13, law sums up the law. So you could go to all those passages where love of God and love of neighbor sums up the law. So in conclusion, and I know I didn't give this enough time, but I don't want to weigh us down. This would be a great study on its own. Um, I've given you some passages there you can look through if you're more interested in that. In conclusion, so guys who are on the right side of history, they're more discontinuous than us, they're going to see a much bigger change. Uh, and they're gonna, the, the key we said in our, in our theology is the Ten Commandments, that moral law of God that's, it was there in the beginning with Adam. Uh, it was reiterated on, on, by the finger of God on tablets of stone, uh, and it's preserved today, and you can see it quoted in the New Testament. And so that would be kind of our main grid. Their grid is going to be a lot more leaning on the New Testament scriptures themselves. Yes, they understand there's reference to the old, but the, in the end of the day, the argument is going to be one on the New Testament, what does Christ teach? And they're not so worried about what's in the old. Uh, Galatians 3, the law was added to the promise. Moses was added to Abraham. And so it was already going to be temporary by its very nature. And that dying to the law um, and living to Christ, that whole phrase, dying to the law, means that there's a new way of viewing obedience to God and viewing righteousness. Way too brief, I know, and we're over time. So I guess I'll have to save your questions till next week. Let's pray. Our Father, again, these are heady things um, that can be complex. Help us to love your word and to love to dive into it. And yet keep us on the straight and narrow. Help us to keep the main things the main things. Help us not to get lost in, in arguments and confusion that um, do us no good. Help us to be gospel-centered, Christ-centered, cross-centered Christians, and yet help us not to be worried about anything in your word. Help us to challenge our systems, our, our eyeglasses, the way we view, view your word. Help us to be solo scriptura people. And again, bless us as we go to worship now. I bless Tim and his preaching, all of us in our singing, our praying, and again, pray for Marco's family. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.